0: Crank up the volume and get ready for real-world bird hunting by listening to the Wingman Podcast by Eastman's. Now your host, Todd Helms. All right, hey guys, Todd Helms here with the Wingman Podcast for the second episode of our podcast. I've got Brandon Mason, who is our, well, Brandon, why don't you tell everybody what you do here with Eastman's and we'll kind of roll into things. Go ahead and tell everybody what you do, introduce yourself.
1: Sounds good, thanks for having me, Todd. Um, Well, I've been with Eastman's now for a little over 10 years, which is hard to believe. And um, my main job here at Eastman's is I work with um, manufacturers and advertising companies to um, help them build their marketing plans with us and also to get the gear in that we use and test in the field so we can do our gear reviews and we can um, have all the gear we need um, for our video projects in the field. That's that's the main thing that I do. Of course, as you know, Eastman's is a uh, family-owned small business, which is really fun to work at because we get to wa- wear a lot of different hats. Uh, but that's literally the main. Literally, purpose. we've got yeah. like
0: four different hats that we wear in, around all the
1: time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, especially now with uh, well, not that Wingman's new, but when we launched Wingman, that was that was pretty cool. It was, uh, something that was definitely different than what we were used to.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that was that was really cool.
1: Well, and and you're right, Brandon.
0: And Brandon, you do an awesome job making sure we get what we need from partners and from advertisers. We always have the right gear when we need it. Very seldom are we waiting on stuff. And that is due in large part to the work that you put in on, on that front. And, like, you know, we wouldn't be able to do anything wingman related without shotguns, clothing, shells. Your ammunition, all that stuff, and you take care of that. And you've landed us some pretty cool stuff outside of that realm as well. And so I really appreciate what you do. And I wanted to have you on and, and visit about how you got your start wing shooting. You know, upland sure. hunting, waterfall hunting, uh, turkey hunting, those are all things that are very they're, they're kind of entry level, I guess. And what I yep. mean by that is anybody can do them. You know, and yep. the, granted, the more involved you get, the more money things come into play and different things. But everybody has ducks and geese available to them across all the flyways. Everybody yep. pretty much has turkeys available to them, and everybody has <laughs> some sort of upland bird somewhere in the in the nation. You know, in the in the upper Midwest, growing up, we had rough grouse and woodcock, and those were what we had. We had some sharp tail mm-hmm. too. You grew up in the, in North Dakota. You had a slew of upland game birds there, and I think yep. for a lot of people, their first hunt tends to be small game. It tends to be upland birds or waterfowl, but that's what they do. You know, they, they my first game animal that I sh- that I shot was a rough grouse, and so I'd like to hear some of your experiences growing up, and then you had a great spring. You guys didn't harvest a bird, but you did it. You hunted the hard way. And I'm really interested to hear some of your some of your stories about this spring hunting turkeys with traditional archery equipment. You, I know you had some close calls, and I want to get I want to hear more of that story. So, if you wouldn't mind, man, just launch into telling us more about Brandon Mason.
1: Yeah, sounds good. Well, like you said, I, I grew up in uh, in North Dakota uh, mostly, and while well, I grew up and lived most of my life in the western half of the state. And I end up going to college in the eastern part. But um, North Dakota is kind of a unique animal. A lot of people don't know just how game rich it really is. And I'm sure a lot of my friends are going to shoot me for uh, talking about it here uh, because they don't want everybody that doesn't already know to know it. But um, obviously, you've got some banging going on
0: someplace. I don't know if it's plosives. Can
1: can you hear that? Or is it better now?
0: That's better. It's a little quieter.
1: Um, but yeah, we were, uh, you know, growing up in North Dakota, there was, there's so much to do in the outdoors. Um, obviously I'm a big game enthusiast. I grew up hunting mule deer, um, in the badlands of Western North Dakota, but also growing up in that part of the state, there's a lot of upland bird opportunities. And I remember vividly when I was eight or nine years old hunting with a 410 shotgun. That was my grandpa's. Um, when my dad would have a day off from the oil field and, in which was pretty rare. Uh, but when, when he actually had a day off, we would go out and, and chase sharp-tailed grouse around. So when we weren't chasing mule deer, one of my dad's things that he, he loved to do was to hunt, um, uh, tailed grouse, which a lot of people, it's kind of surprising to me how few people have ever hunted them and, or have ever seen them. And, uh, in, in western and central north dakota there there's quite a few of them there's not as many as there used to be because the habitats changed, you know compared to what they need but um there's still pockets where there's a lot of uh sharp-tailed grouse and then of course north dakota and south dakota are known for pheasants as well and so all through high school you know 100 you know pheasants quite a bit and sharp-tailed grouse um i was kind of spoiled because i had uh uh I still have an uncle who works for uh, a big sporting goods store in that part of the country. And, and he would bring out, here I am as a 16 year old, I can remember this too. He brought the Browning rep out with him to hunt sharptail grouse with my dad and I. And so here I am a 16 year old that doesn't even know what a good shotgun is. And I'm shooting uh, an over and under Satori. And ever since then I've been hooked on over and unders. And uh, you know, not realizing how much they cost most of the time, and right. just how that's sort of a nostalgic shotgun for a lot of bird hunters. I was hooked ever since then, and I wanted an over and under. And then, you know, of course, I ran down to my local sporting goods store and I thought, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna save up, buy an over and under," as a sixteen-year-old. Uh, yeah, that didn't happen. Once I saw how how much most of them actually cost, but anyway, so yeah, it was kind of a, a neat upbringing with with, uh, different relatives that I had. And, and especially my dad taking us out. And then a lot of my friends in high school were big bird hunters. I was probably more into big game hunting than they were. Um, they, they big game hunted a little bit, but, um, they were big, um, waterfowlers and, um, you know, pheasant hunters, especially. And you know, uh, the, the the Dakotas
0: Central- are, yeah, the Dakotas are so, so known for pheasants. I mean, it's like, if you're Growing up in the Midwest, in the upper Midwest, we didn't, I lived so far north that we didn't have pheasants. They just, Mm -hmm. we did not have the habitat for pheasants. It was, we grew up in the woods and it was a dream to go to North or South Dakota and hunt pheasants. And I remember the very first time I did it, it blew my mind. So to
1: grow up with that in your backyard, man, you're lucky. Well, talking about taking good bird hunting for granted that I remember in high school vividly that. And, and, you know, this isn't a, oh, I remember back in the good old days type story, but seriously, it was, you know, in the heyday of the CRP program. So the CRP program, which right. put a lot of habitat on the ground and uh, dealt with erosion control and all that, um, was about probably, I don't know, six years old when I was in high school. And so it was really coming into its own. A lot of the grasses and forbs that were planted were doing well. And you know, they planted in the, in the CRP fields, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them, they have what's called DNC dense nesting cover. Sure. And so um, you'd go I, out let me, and let me I stop remember- it. Let me stop you for one second. The DNC,
0: because that dovetails into something else. Brandon, Brandon has is a wildlife biologist by trade. That is what you went to school for, correct? To college correct, for. Yep. So you have a correct. you have a degree in wildlife biology. You worked for the North Dakota, um, I guess, Game Department and, of Game uh, and Fish. Game and Fish, Game and Fish for a while. So when Brandon says things like he's giving you information right now about the CRP and the dense nesting cover and throwing out terms like that, this isn't stuff he's just read. This is stuff he has firsthand experience and knowledge with and I know we lean on you in that regard here around the office for bi- on the big game side of things as well, uh, kind of your your biologist expertise for at different levels. So when you hear Brandon talking about that stuff, he's he knows what he's talking about, and I I know I for one really appreciate having that perspective in the office that you can just go lean on. So just sorry I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just had to. I wanted to give you a little bit of your bona fides there.
1: <laughs> no, that's no problem. I and Some of that stuff, like any job that you do, you take for granted what you learn in the, in the job or on the job. And sometimes when you are talking about certain components of that job outside of that job, you forget that not everybody's on the same page. And that's with any career, you know, any job that, that you know, you're a, a former teacher, a former educator. And you would, you know, I know around the office, sometimes you say things that I'm like, uh, you lost me. I don't right. know what you're talking about, <laughs> right. but um, yeah. So with that uh, back to the whole nesting cover um, that was planted in the late eighties, um, I mean, it was planted other time periods too, but there's a heavy enlisting um, in the federal agencies with this, with the CRP program. And so the, the upland bird numbers and the waterfowl numbers just exploded. And I remember vividly in high school going with one of my friends Um, to his uncle's farm near Elmont, North Dakota. And we would, we got out of our vehicles, walked into the edge of a CRP field, and there were so many pheasants that got up. Oh, I mean, it was about a 20 minute constant wall of birds that just kept exploding into the sky so much so that you know, at first you try to get your gun up to shoot, but there's so many hens mixed in that you you couldn't pull off a shot because there's just way too many birds together. Right. And then after a couple minutes of that, you pretty soon you just rest your shotgun on your shoulder and just admire what you're watching. I mean, even at that time when we were used to seeing a lot of birds, that was ridiculous. I mean, there were so many pheasants wow. that got up. Wow. In fact, he would, I remember he would go out there oftentimes if I pick a little bit harder spot to hunt where it take me most of the day to fill my quote of three birds or my bag limit i he would he would call me later that night says before we had cell phones and um i said hey man how'd you do today well i was and and keep in mind this hunting spot was an hour from where we lived he would be back at home birds cleaned on the couch watching football with a limit of three birds by one o'clock and it's an hour two hour round trip drive
0: and was there uh in north dakota is there a delayed start time like I know South Dakota, um, you can't start until 10 o'clock in, in the morning, and that's to give the birds time to get away from the roosts and get out in in loafing cover or feed um, locations for the day. Is Does North Dakota have
1: anything like that? It doesn't, um, but I will tell you this. Most of the places, except for a couple phenomenal off-the-charts places, like I just mentioned, most of the time with experience, you know, you think you're so used to, we're so programmed that you had to get up at the first crack of dawn, get out there and start hunting. That's what you're supposed to do. Right. Hunting, or fishing or whatever. Well, we learned that we were money ahead and time ahead. We just sleep in, which felt like a cardinal sin to do, but we would sleep in and really not get it, get after it too hard until 10 30, 11 o'clock. And, and the birds would be settled down and we'd have a much more controlled, fun, experience and would still, we would have our birds by noon. Right. And if we went out at first light, we would chase them around until 11 o'clock and then we would have our birds by noon. And so right. we just started figuring, why don't we just sleep into like 10, grab a bite to eat and, uh, and go out there and, 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 and we'd still have the same success at the same time and with a lot less frustration, you know, and sure. the, the, especially with pheasants. I mean, they're, they like to run and, um, you know it's not considered considered very sporting when you shoot when you ground ball them and shoot them on the ground but um well like, yeah. So not, if, not only that it's
0: flat out dangerous you know well, and in, in a lot especially. of situations you got dogs or a large group of people but yeah no that's really interesting that that you talk about that that's i would have i would have given my eye teeth as a kid to have some of those some of those hunts that, that that you had, that you had grown up. And I mean, still to this day, the Plain States are where it's at for, for pheasant hunting, but there's a lot more there too. I mean, there's the native grouse species you and prairie chickens and, and you have sharp-tailed grouse and um, you get down into Western Iowa. And I know the quail numbers are still good in places like Iowa or Kansas for that matter. And even down into Texas, you can get into some really, really good bird shooting and, I don't yeah. know. Up, upland game birds, are they hold—they still to this day hold a special place in my heart. And you know, out here where we live in Wyoming, it's a little bit tougher. We have pheasants. We have good numbers of pheasants in certain areas, um, but a lot of it is like the video we filmed a year ago. That is, it's planted birds, and for a lot of people, that is the reality of of pheasant hunting in today's world. But it's still there, still available. You know, and we have. The wild birds that we do have here when it comes to pheasants are they're wily and they're tough to get on. Yeah. But we have chucker hunting out here, which is pretty unique. There's not a lot of chuckers. Chuckers don't they're not a very geographically widespread bird in the in the United States and North America. But we have some of the best chucker hunting in the world right mm-hmm. here in Wyoming. And so that's a lot of fun. But so you, you had this love for over and unders. You had a, you know, you grew up shooting, hunting pheasants. Where is that taken you? What have you, how have you moved forward? And I guess for lack of a better term, matured as a, as a bird hunter?
1: Well, one of, one of my first loves in life is archery. And, um, when the archery bug bit me in high school, um, man, I was just completely consumed by it. And then, I don't remember where we found the video, but there's a, there's an old video called the legendary hunts of Ben Pearson and it shows him wing shooting with a recurve. And I was completely blown away. And, and so I think, I don't think it was until I got to college when I could, I was finally able to afford a recurve and I fletched my arrows with, you know, flu flu fletching, which is like uncut feathers. Right. Familiar with what that is, so it slows your arrow down quicker. Does it go as far? Um, it, they kind of fly like a lawn dart, where they're going really fast, and then boom, they just go straight down and hit the ground. But and so when I was in my seasonal jobs with the Game and Fish Department and the Forest Service in college, I had nothing to do at night, and and uh, so I would. I was one of the years in particular I was staying in a in an old camper, and right next to the field station I was working, at was a great big field. And we would, uh, well, not we, I would go out there with a Frisbee and my recurve, and I would throw the Frisbee for myself, and I would see how quickly I could shoot at the Frisbee um, before it got too far, and then also I wanted to be accurate. So it got to the point where I I practiced so much um, when I was in my late teens and early 20s that I could hunt or I could hit a Frisbee pretty consistently about six or seven out of ten times in the air. That's impressive. and, uh, and then I, I, have done a little bit of bird hunting with it. Um, I, I, every time I've laid in the decoys in a, in a field after a geese, the geese don't come in. So either, um, they're scared or, or probably not that I'm sure, but they've seen me shoot. <laughs> but, uh, with a, but with pheasants, I have, um, man, I've, I've done everything, but actually bring one down. I've, I, and I haven't spent a ton of time actually hunting that way, mostly because I'm with guys who have dogs that obviously don't want me launching a sharp stick in the air and uh, while their dogs are around. But uh, when I've been without a dog, which obviously bird hunting without one is a challenge, but when I've gone out and like late season, I really like where um, I would hit a cattail slough or river bottoms with a bunch of thick cover and uh, backwater areas of, like, the Missouri River. Sure. I hit a lot, and uh, there's a bunch of thick cattails, and and I would just bust through them. Me and a buddy would usually go out, and, and I would, you know, shoot at them with my flu flu arrows. And I've shot through the primary feathers on the wings um, to where, you know, just another half an inch, if even, I would have brought them down. Sure. Um, I've nicked them in the feathers on the back as they're flying uh, left to right and uh just it's really neat it adds a whole another dimension to your shooting when you can see the projectile going for the animal in the air and i bet bet that really football right yeah it's like throwing a football trying to hit a receiver um, going for the end zone and that anticipation as you're watching it, it and not just me but even whoever's with me it's amazing the cheers and the oh man, he almost got him, or oh man, he <laughs> him, or, you can see where the arrow's going, and it's like, it's on this path, it's going to hit him, and it just barely misses. Of course, you're aiming for a small target, but right. uh, pheasants are pretty fun to hunt with a bow like that. Um, turkeys, obviously, which we'll get into the story of the spring, but um, I tried one time to hunt sharptails with them, um, and that was an exercise in futility. They're just too quick um, yeah. off the ground and now i know guys that have done it i actually know a guy that passed shot um a partridge believe it or not um and he admits that it was dumb luck that he hit it but sure. he was out hunting birds with his bow and actually a cubby of partridge got up and and he he knocked one right out of the air with it, which is amazing i wow, mean that's, that's
0: pretty starts, that's pretty crazy you know, yeah yeah because the grouse and then the, and then the hungarian partridge like you're saying they're they 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 definitely seem to flush a lot faster than a rooster pheasant. Um uh, yeah. that and wild roosters are pretty quick, no doubt about it, but there's mm-hmm. something about an a bird like a grouse that can reach maximum speed, flight speed in about 3 wing beats that is uh yeah, that would be tough with with archery tackle, no doubt about it. Well, yeah. we should go we should go try that again. Um you know I think uh we should definitely try the goose thing and see if we can get you a goose this this fall this winter with a recurve. I would really like to see that and I I think I think our listeners would like to see it and hear about it. I think that's a, I think that's a podcast opportunity right there, man.
1: Yeah, for sure. It's and it's it's just a blast. I mean, I don't once once you learn to instinctively shoot um, it's kind of like riding a bicycle you don't really forget and and it does take a you know maybe a little more practice and you know people say it takes so much more practice than shooting a compound with sights I don't know if I agree with that I mean I've been I'm 43 years old and I've been shooting instinctively since I was 16 and uh, so that's a long time of developing your internal sights I guess and you know it takes a little adjustment between different bows you know I've shot recurves, long bows. I got several different recurves at home. I shoot instinctively with my compound. And, um, and it's not, I mean, it's really not that different, you know, a few arrows into it, you get a feel for the bow and you're good to go. Well, and not to mention it
0: is the same, it's the same principle shooting instinctive archery tackle is the same principle as shooting a shotgun. You right. know, you're not, you're not aiming as much as you're pointing,
1: right? Exactly. And you're,
0: you're letting your eye your hand-eye coordination run the show. You know, your – people don't – you don't have to think. I heard about it like this. You know, you don't have to think. When you pick up a ball to throw it, Mm -hmm. you don't have to think about, oh, I need to throw it here, and so I got to aim over here with it. You just pick it up throw it.
1: Right, and you forget how much training that took as a kid. Right. You know, as a kid, you know, when you're a three-year-old and you're picking up a ball, you you didn't have that – perception of how no. to throw, coordination and all that but once you have it who has to remember how to throw a baseball Nobody. right
0: and it's the same with shooting a shotgun and i'm i'm sure shooting instinctive archery you through repetition your brain tells your hand where you know tells your body what to do basically and mm-hmm. it's pretty amazing and i know for me the all when i make a really lights out incredible shot on with a shotgun on a, on a bird. It's usually because I didn't have time to think. Exactly. Something yeah. happened quickly and I had to react to the situation and you make the shot and you're like, Whoa. <laughs> and then when you get one all lined up and it's coming in and you know, whether geese are, geese are terrible with this cause they're big. They seem like they're moving slow and you should be able to, you know, three for three, no problem on geese. Well, you see guys that go out and the dudes that can do three for three on geese are pretty rare. Mm-hmm. You know, and do it consistently. And I know the shots that I have missed the, the 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 worst are always the ones that I have time to think about. And it's like yeah. I'm, I'm premeditating in my mind how this is going to work out and how it's going to go. And you end up picking your head up. Or Mm -hmm. stop your swing or you do whatever. You don't just let your
1: body make make it happen. I was the same way in basketball. And I know you were a basketball player and coach and everything. And I probably, you know, align with this that and I didn't realize I was doing this. I remember I think it was a junior in high school, and my coach pulled me aside and he said, You need to quit thinking and just shoot the basketball. He said, You're an instinctive shooter. He said, you need to catch the ball and shoot because when I would think I would miss every time. And and when I would just catch the ball and shoot, it, you know, not that I made it every time, but that my shooting percentage was a lot higher. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, I
0: remember I had a string when I was shooting, um, when I was shooting Skeet League in the summertime, I had a string. I was younger, probably in my, my early 20s, and shot a lot and man, I hit a slump. I went into a slump. I could not break more than 16 targets, and it was always the same birds that I was dropping on the skeet course, on the skeet field. It was stations three, four, and five, the crossing birds, and I could always hit the high house, but the low house, I could not break, and unfortunately, that carried over into station six and 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 seven, I was dropping the high house bird too. And those are, some of those angles are pretty simple. But my, one of my buddies stopped me one afternoon, one evening. And he said, dude, I can see the wheels turning in your head when you, as soon as you step in that box, the minute you step in that box to shoot, you're thinking he's like, you need to take like a couple weeks off and not shoot, not pick up a gun and just come back and see what your body remembers. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, the very first round back, I broke a 24. <laughs> and it was like, wow, mental reset. And it and I was good to go. Yeah. And, and so it's it's funny how those things, those instinctive practices that once you hone the fundamental skills, man, they're there. And they don't they don't go away. You might get rusty. You know, and it would it behooves all, every single one of us to go out ahead of season and shoot shotgun and get some trap in, get some sporting clays or some skeet in. Because if you just wait and don't do any of that, you're gonna you're gonna struggle the first few hunts of the season, no doubt. But it's amazing how fast it all comes back.
1: Well, and in some of that mindset goes along with I don't know. Sometimes I think when we get in a groove of what we're doing, as is. As hunters we start to outthink ourselves um and so even even the shooting aside just the hunting practices sometimes we can overthink it um case in point this spring on that turkey hunt that we keep referencing my my son wanted to um he's 14 and he wanted to do it with his recurve or nothing and um and so we went uh recurve only on the hunt it's just he and i and we were really we patterned some turkeys. We set up some decoys. We did the whole morning hunting and they just, there's just too many of them. They didn't want to cooperate. They didn't even come down from this hill that they were roosting up on, um, to really look at what we had set up or anything. They'd respond to the calls and everything, but they just weren't overly interested. And so, um, I'm thinking we need to back out of there and try a different approach for the evening. And my son said, why don't we just go up into the hills after them? I'm thinking, yeah, right. Good luck with that. And you know, what, what's going to happen is we're going to walk in there to the first group of thick timber and they're going to blow up and get out of there. Right. And we're not, you know, we're going to ruin it for the next couple of days or whatever. And I thought, you know what though, this is a good experience. Even if we blow them out of there, he'll, it'll be a learning experience for them. Well, it was actually a learning experience for me because we started still hunting following the turkeys and you could hear him clear as a bell, not that far away. And then they kind of shut up, and we thought, "I'm thinking we they probably heard us quietly stepping and took off." He turned back to say something to me, and not ten yards through the cover, this Tom belts out a bugle or bugle. Oh my gosh! Did I just say that? <laughs> See, we always liken it to uh, to a September Alcony, don't we? Right. People give us credit right. for that, but he let out a gobble. And, um, I used to have heard and, you say that he'd slap you in the mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, then and we heard the the hens right around him too, and we couldn't. And then we we saw him moving through the trees, and they didn't even know we were there. Wow. I couldn't believe it. And so he almost got a shot there. He came to about half draw. He thought he could sneak a shot through an opening in the brush, and he couldn't. And then they just kept feeding up this hill through the pines, and and we could hear him going away, and so we just trailed him. He got within uh, 15 yards of them again, and he just couldn't get a shot at. Uh, There's a couple of toms in the group, and he just couldn't get a shot at one of them because the hens were surrounding him. But and then they ended up spooking and taking off. But so here's my mind thinking, oh, I've been there, done that. Tried to fall through the trees; it never works. Well, we moved at a you know snail's pace and were real methodical. And twice we got within archery range of them, really? and we just get a shot because of uh you know the cover or one time they were skyline there's too many hens in the way but the point is we were we were right there and they didn't know it which is pretty phenomenal and there's using, a,
0: using there's a method that just does not work you know what i mean if you ask traditional wisdom would dictate that right. you can't still hunt turkeys you can't right. you can't stalk them you can't still hunt them that's craziness and yep. you guys had a very different experience than that which i I find fascinating having having grown up back in the upper Midwest, hunting turkeys, hunting eastern turkeys in Michigan that get an enormous amount of pressure. And then having hunted a lot of different populations of birds in different states in the Midwest, you can't you can't move basically. Once you're once you're set up, you not only have to be still, but you have to be hidden as well. Mm-hmm. And man, we get away with so much out here hunting turkeys our birds are i think a lot of people would call them stupid but i don't think that's (laughs) i don't think that's the case i think that they are they do they are a little more naive than heavily hunted eastern birds are there's no doubt about it but i think part of that is that they live in such wide open much more open terrain in a lot of cases that I think a lot of times they're looking far off for, for danger. And a lot, if it's right in their lap under their nose, I've had birds walk right. Well, we have, we had a situation on our turkey hunt. The, we were there just before you were a couple days before. And I got up to keep tabs on a bird on a group of birds. We made a, we made a move and it wasn't working out. And I was, I just wanted to creep up and get a look over this ridge and see if we could cut them off or how we needed to approach continuing to hunt them. And I had four hens catch me. I'm standing up in the wide open and I just froze. I'm about in a half kind of half stooped over and I froze and they walked past me five feet and it's all on camera. We have the whole Mm -hmm. thing on camera. They walked by me at five feet and I just stood there, did not move. You know, I was wearing the Sitka, um, subalpine, Optifade subalpine, which we could get into that too. I mean, I think that's a, I think that's a phenomenal pattern, especially for spring turkeys, but, um, it's weird. It's almost like they're, they don't care. You're so close to them. You must not be dangerous.
1: Well, it's and even, weird. even I think part of it, like you said, has to do with the terrain that whether they're looking far off or not, I don't know, but they, um, it's more conducive to stalking too. You know, there's there's little cuts and ridge lines and, and you can sneak behind a little patch of brush. It's not a wall of impenetrable brush like some of the spots you've told me about where you've hunted in Iowa um, or we're not on the river bottoms. You know, that's a different scenario where you're trying to right. walk through. A cottonwood slash Russian olive slash willow slash whatever river bottom is next to impossible to be sneaky. But when you're up in the hills and, you know, out in maybe some more broken country, I mean, it's totally doable to stock on them. I mean, we, the first couple of years that I turkey hunted, all, all we ever heard is that you can't stock on turkeys and that's the only way we killed them. In fact, we didn't even own decoys at the time. Right? We didn't even own a call. We didn't even know what we were doing. We just saw some turkeys went after them and killed them. We thought, Oh, that's pretty cool. And, uh, we just treated them like they were deer. And, and that's how I took the, the first one that I shot with my, uh, recurve on a rainy afternoon years ago and, uh, which got me hooked on bow hunting them. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely doable to stock on them. It just depends on where you, where you are, you know, what state you're in, what part of the state. Yeah, no, I,
0: I agree completely. You know, you you try to pull a stock on a, on a big Eastern bird. Yeah. Very seldom does that work out for you. Very, very seldom. And I'm, you know, even shooting a shotgun, that's one of the tactics that I prefer to use when I get a bird located. If I can see him or figure out exactly where he's at, I really like to get as close as I can get before I set up, put out the decoys or sit down to call or whatever it it may be. I want to be as close to that bird as I can because it makes it that much easier for him to just slip over and oh, I'm just going to sneak over here and see what she's all about. Um, it's you couldn't do that. You couldn't do that mm-hmm. in, the, in the East. Uh, you can't do that in the South. It's some of the things that we get away with out here on our birds is are crazy. And I do think that the terrain plays a very, very large role in, in that. I, I don't think those birds are any dumber than they are anyplace else. They're, they're not as heavily pressured and we have the, we definitely have the ability to use terrain to our advantage more so than in other places. And it, man, it works. It works. Some of the st- <laughs> I've had more than one person come out from, from the Midwest or the South or back East to hunt birds and hunt turkeys with me out here. And they're flabbergasted at some of the stuff that we can get away with. You know, whether it's sitting up against a big ponderosa pine with no understory and you're, you're really exposed, you're really mm. badly exposed. And yeah, we definitely get seen because, and there's, because they, they do see you. And, and that's part of where the, I think the bird's naivete kind of shows is they don't, they might see you, but they're not necessarily associating you with, with a person or a hunter and where an Eastern bird would see you pick you out from 200 yards away and go, I'm not going over there. And they turn around yeah. and you know, you hunt those birds back in the Midwest or the East or the South, you have to be hidden. You know, you have, your outline has to be broken up. You have to be pretty, pretty well hidden to consistently score, especially on, on public land birds, even mm-hmm. if you're using, you know, it, and even they using terrain to your advantage, you know, a, a ridge or a hill or a draw and you, you hide over the edge of the ridge and call the bird to you and they peek up over and look, and they've got to come over and look for you, you know, or you, you, the last place you called from, you sneak 20 yards to the side and set up because then the bird goes, they can pinpoint exactly where you're calling from and they go to that spot and you're not there. You flanked them and they don't see you. There's so many, so many tactics. We could, it's, it's crazy, but, the fact that you guys had success actually getting into bow range on still hunting turkeys with traditional equipment, (laughs) I would have killed to have been there to witness
1: that. That would have been really cool. Yeah, it was a lot of fun and it's fun to walk around with a recurve in the woods too. They're, you know, really lightweight and it's not for everybody, but they're not as limiting as what people think. You know, people just see a stick and a string and they think, oh, that's the old days and and uh that's too hard to do it's it's actually not it's just you know it takes a, an, an initially a lot of practice to get your shooting form down and your instinctive shooting down but once you get that down it's it's really not that big a deal sure sure well i'm definitely going to get you out in the in the goose field
0: again this year and we're going to i want to see you swat a goose with with the recurve that's
1: that oh, man my, That'd that's be a my blast.
0: Goal. we'll get you and your son hunter out there and i would love to
1: see you guys see so you guys pull that off um i think well you know uh, we we were talking recently in a wingman meeting member was that last week i think we were talking about doing some tips on um sitting up to shoot out of a right out of a layout blind you know practicing that because it's weird you're not used to shooting that way well imagine laying with a recurve on your chest and trying to shit, sit up and shoot really quick i mean holy cow that takes some practice that, that's hard <laughs>
0: Yeah, I know. I hear you. It's it's a whole other ballgame game when you're trying to shit up and and shoot.
1: Yeah. But, <laughs> and between my uh, between my bugling for turkeys and uh, and shitting up to shoot a goose, I got some. I just outlined some new tactics. You know. Yeah, I, I,
0: I think we've opened up a whole them. new uh, a whole new <laughs> can of worms here for this one. Holy! Yeah,
1: anything I can do to help? You know. Yeah.
0: No. That's why we love you our resident biologist. <laughs> oh, and no, I I and I think we've got some opportunity as well with kind of modifying we we've, we've been playing around with some different techniques for decoying waterfowl especially on in dry fields where we're moving away from the layouts um quite a bit actually. They're they're harder to shoot out of than say an A frame for example. But there's opportunity there. I think, especially on geese, I think we definitely have some opportunity that we'll look for the right. We'll look for the right setup, and if we can get it, I'm gonna. We'll leave the dog at home and or uh, make sure he's good and steady. And mm-hmm. I want to see that happen because that would be pretty cool. That would be pretty cool to witness. But. Well, Brandon, I want to thank you for taking the time to join me today and sharing some knowledge and some laughs. I had a good time visiting with you, and it definitely won't be the last time we have you on the podcast for sure.
1: Yeah, it's always fun. I mean, the, thing, the fun thing about bird hunting that was weird to me initially when I started is, you know, you go out um, when I was a little kid. I was used to hunting big game with my dad, and once he would shoot his mule deer, we were done, of course, and, and uh, right. went home. Whereas uh, I remember the first time I downed a, a um, you know, a grouse, we could, oh, you mean I keep going? Right. Well, that's cool. So right. um, it's just a different animal altogether and it's really fun. And, and I mean, I just love being outdoors. I love, we all have our favorite thing that we do, but you know, people say, what's you? what do you like to hunt? I'm like everything. It's just spending time outdoors and, and being with friends and family and weapon of your choice. And depending on the activity, maybe a good dog with you. And, um, <clears throat> you know, there's, it's just nothing like it. It's, it's, uh, like, a one of my favorite quotes from, uh, Teddy Roosevelt is only he who has partaken thereof can appreciate the keen delight of hunting in lonely lands. I just, just, it says it all right there. Yeah. And he doesn't say elk hunting
0: and you know, it's just hunting. And, and I, I think that's a, I think that's a big part of it. Like I said, going back to when we opened this thing, Bird hunting is accessible for most people. They they can do it. They it, whether it's ducks or geese or turkeys or upland birds, most people have some sort of bird hunting pretty close to them, right? Mm-hmm. And they can they can get into it. You know, there's a there's a definitely a barrier to entry when it comes to big game, um, especially out here in the West. It's it's public land, sure. This, the the access may not be the barrier, but you know, knowing how to when it comes to elk especially knowing how to get one out of the field you know you're by yourself and you're say you're a you're a kid you might not have the ability to do that but man a lot of people can go walk a ditch line and flush roosters with the with the family dog and and do some shooting um i know access in a lot of parts of the country is is becoming super limited and it's getting harder and harder and harder to get out and hunt and we're fortunate here in wyoming that that we that we have lots of access and we have lots of opportunity but um still that the bird hunting is one of those things that it's just anybody can do it you know you grab a shotgun doesn't matter what you're shooting you know whether it's that over and under that fancy over and under that everybody or that folks aspire to or it's the old harrington and richardson single shot 410 Go right. out, go out and hunt you know, and those are some of my fondest memories growing up. Like you said, are was going out and it's it, it wasn't sitting in a deer blind for me because that was super boring, but my fondest memories were pheasant hunts and grouse hunts and duck hunts and just love it. Love it still to this day, but well, thanks again, Brandon. I appreciate it. We're going to wrap it up and look forward to the next time. Sounds good, man. Thanks. All right. Hey guys, that was Brandon Mason with Eastman's Hunting Journals. Brandon's a great friend and a good guy. He does an awesome job there at at excuse me at Eastman's, and obviously wing, with here at Wingman, we are Eastman's is our parent company, and so they oversee everything we do. And Brandon is basically in charge of, I guess you could call it procurement, and deals with. If it wasn't for him and what he does, I couldn't. I wouldn't have shotguns to shoot. I wouldn't have, the wingman crew wouldn't have ammo or decoys or things like that. So Brandon is integral to what we do there and we got to have him and he's a great guy. So I appreciate him taking some time and visiting with us. That was awesome. We had a lot of fun. And the only thing better, I think, than maybe sitting down and having a conversation with Brandon is going hunting with Brandon. He and I have been fortunate enough to share some pretty good experiences and made some wonderful memories in the field together. And I'm looking forward to more. Well, thanks for joining us again. I appreciate it. And we will see you in the field.